Welcome to Washington Execs Givers of GovCon podcast series, where we highlight the philanthropic efforts within the government contracting community and speak to the leaders spearheading them. Over the next weeks, you'll hear us talk with givers of all kinds as we dig deeper into how and why they're giving back. So thanks for tuning in and enjoy this next episode of Givers of GovCon. Welcome, Sumit, to the podcast. I'm thrilled to be talking with you today. Well, thank you, Camille. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm excited about talking about some of my personal passions. So personal passions, I mean, I know you as a CEO who has really built his business throughout the year. What do you think has been your key strategy to success? I tell you, it's a cliche that I'm sure a lot of people throw out there, but it's about putting the best people you know around you, trusted people. I saw it. I worked for dad for many years. My first 10 years really of my career was working for my father. And I saw the way he surrounded himself. I mean, he was an incredible individual who had his own success, a national SBA person of the year and all sorts of things. But the people he put around him and the way he trusted them was something that you I picked up really early on. And I'll tell you that whether it's this, the array side, whether it's the stuff we'll talk about in terms of some of the projects I'm involved in outside of array, it's always been about find really good people, surround yourself with them, and then trust them to execute. Yeah. I think a good strategy is to never be the smartest person in the room. I totally agree. Totally agree. <laughs> I also worked for my dad in my younger years. He had his own business oh, cool. and I was always the one who did the front desk duties. I was like 12. So I would get <laughs> these international calls. This was in Sweden, international calls. And I was so excited. I got to speak English yeah. and all I had to do was like, please hold. That's all I said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. It was funny. I would work in the copy room. I would go make the coffee runs or the donuts. It runs on a morning, a Saturday morning for proposals. It's funny you mentioned that, but yeah, any which way to gain the experience, but also to some degree, let others know that you are there to serve. Yeah. So let's talk about your passion projects. When you aren't the CEO and the businessman that you are, tell me a little bit about the two projects that we want to focus on today that really gets you up in the morning. Absolutely. It's funny. I know when, when we were talking before, we were, I was talking about these as two projects, but they're on a continuum of really an underpinning of the importance of education and what it's not only been in my personal life, but the lives of almost everybody that I grew up with over the years. And, and it really sort of emanates, in this case, the two projects, I guess I should get that out, the Northern Virginia Science Center, which is an effort to build the first science center here in this region. The D.C. metropolitan region happens to be the largest metropolitan region in the United States without a science center. We have to go up to Baltimore to see the museum up there or the Virginia Science Museum in Richmond. And so this has sort of been a labor of love that started about 15 years ago by many other people, not me. I, I've only gotten engaged in the last three, four years, but to really bring that and it really represents that informal kind of love that you want to build in multi-generations, not just kids, but across the spectrum of people to come in, tinker, learn things, start conversations, but really augments the formal learning. And then the formal learning side for me has been instantiated in work that I've been doing with George Mason. That's now going on seven, eight years. I graduated with my MBA from there in 94, but really about seven, eight years ago, found myself at a place where it made sense to start to engage. And so for both of those, I see those as a continuum of education intersected with STEM. And in the more personal side of it, 
is what I see both of them being able to do both formally and informally to create a pathway for people who might not otherwise have access to the kind of learning that these provide. And that really is around the story of immigrants and the story of my dad and all the people I grew up with in the early days when we first came to the United States to see what education can do to sort of lift up whole families and frankly, whole communities. And I see both of these as the instantiation of that. So how was your relationship with STEM growing up and looking into careers? I myself, just to clear this deck, I myself am a tinkerer, but not formally trained in a STEM field, really. It was really watching dad and way back in the day when he came in 70, 71, when I was four or five years old at the time to Chapel Hill, North Carolina to do his master in computer science. But what I saw, which was really cool, was him tinkering with stuff in the house, the Heath kits way back when that's going obviously back for a lot of people, but Heath kits and playing around with electronics. And I saw how that applied to how he would fix a radio, how he would fix all that self-service. I mean, we've lost a little bit of that now in today's world, but really seeing that. And it's interesting because we were one of the first families. I remember getting a PC when the PCs first came out in early eighties. So always had exposure and was always around it. I myself, although good in math and science, I, th- I think I was a little less structured by trade. I didn't. And, and so that took me in some other directions. And frankly, for my career, it found me in the back office doing things like pricing, which I loved and contracts and HR and other things. But I've always, for my career, been around IT-based businesses. And I think that's based on the fact that I do have a love for that area. I do see how over the years it's enabled, again, not only just people, but When you think about what the IT revolution has done for the country, the world, we haven't always taken advantage of it. We have a lot to do right now when it comes to science and technology and what we need to do to address grand challenges. But it's something that from day one, I saw my dad doing, my uncles doing, and was always intrigued by how it could impact people and how it could help people's lives be better. I remember going into my dad's office and seeing the first version of the Mac And I was like, the Mac computer. And I was like, oh, if there's anything I can get for Christmas, of course, I couldn't because it was expensive. But I used it to draw. I used the drawing program and I loved it. I think that was my real fascination with technology. I was like, oh my gosh, I really want that for Christmas. And my dad said, no, that's for work. This is not play, Camille. This is work. <laughs> it was very- yeah, it, it's funny. I'll tell you, I'll connect that dot to, I remember the early days of like fantasy baseball and, mm-hmm. and football where I would have to pick up the box score. So my first love when using the PC was I would use box scores on the day after a game and hand chart everything and then send it to my friends or take it to school and say, Hey, here's how many points you had this week or this or that. And I remember when the PC came out and I figured out that you could actually do that on the PC and that I could automate some of those early things. It's still tied to a passion of sports I have, but it was really cool seeing the power that you could do there and all the hours it saved me, frankly. So the Science Center, can you talk a little bit about how you actually got involved with that and how you mentioned education, how important it is and giving those opportunities to those who may not have those opportunities. So how does that play into cultivating the next STEM workforce, if you will? Absolutely. And it's funny you bring that up because it really is 
along that continuum, the long-term view of our needs of a STEM workforce, right? So ultimately, when you bring it back down to that, I think it's really important. But if you pull the thread back a little bit, I got involved, like I said, although it's been around for about 14, 15 years, the effort to build this about four years ago, I think it was a work relationship of mine, uh, Fran Craig at Uninet. She actually said, hey, you know, there's this thing I'm involved in that I'm on the board on. Why don't you come to a lunch? And although there was really cool things at the lunch, and it was sort of my first exposure, I think in the back of my mind, I'd heard about the Children's Science Lab at Fair Oaks Mall, which was, I think, seven years ago, the organization built that out as a retail instantiation to start getting the people to think about it and start to get kids through and field trips and all that. But my kids were older, and so it really was on the sideline to me, and I didn't really know much about it. But I get to this lunch. And it was really cool. And the thing that got me was you had all these kids that were there, right? As part of this lunch, I mean, purposefully, but all around the back of the ballroom, all around the ballroom with their little experiments that they were working on. And what was really neat when you looked at that, and this kind of goes to those underserved communities and communities that haven't really been able to avail themselves of everything that we have to offer in this region. There were kids from all races, all demographics, there was a Latina girls initiative that they had started and so met some of them and just seeing their faces. And we're talking about kids that are six, seven years old up to high schoolers who were confidently walking you through their little experiment and how they built it, how they understood what was going on. And just watching that, forget the rest of the formal part of the lunch. That was it. I was like, okay, you can see what a science center could do if we could start to bring people through, if we could start to bring multiple generations through. As we know also in a lot of places here, I mean, despite the wealth in this region that we all read about, we know that there's a ton of Title I schools and a ton of folks that really don't get access to everything that we have to offer. And so I could see how that was happening in the, like the term I use, the informal way. They were coming in with their parents. Their parents were seeing the potential of what STEM and a STEM-based education and that love of science and technology could do for their children as they were meeting meteorologists and NASA scientists and other folks who had grown up very similarly to these other young girls and boys that were in the room. But that really just, that was it. I walked away from that lunch and thinking, I have to get involved. We need the science center. You could almost began to visualize now what it could do when busloads of kids or kids on weekends with their parents and grandparents could come and have a place where they can have these conversations, tinker a little bit, meet people like them and be able to go back and say, that's not what I want to do. And again, if I ratchet that or go back 40, 50 years, and you think about the opening of the immigration in the United States in the late sixties and all of my parents and their families that came together, it was starting to connect that dot that, wow, that ability to get people excited early and then later on, give them the opportunity to get that education that's going to raise, as it did for my family and my broader family in India and other places, the success that dad had here it has been impactful for now generations across many families. And today it's cool to be into science and technology, and there are so many options. I see these initiatives that involve girls in cybersecurity or coding or whatever. But what do you think are still the challenges in reaching these less privileged groups or these girls and boys that are interested in science but may not have the needs to take a class or get into a program that they want? 
Yeah, well, that's a fundraising question. When you really think about it, it's about, and this would be the challenge to everybody listening to this and everybody that is thinking about how do they impact and how can they impact just at the most local level, the region that we all live in and have grown up in and service. It has been about the opportunity. And the fact is that it comes in many ways that are nuanced or not so nuanced for people. I grew up in an environment where highly educated parents dinner table conversation was about topic things. We could take spring breaks or summers and go places and learn about new cultures. But when you think about the typical demographic of the folks that we are trying to get to and the challenges they have, they have parents that are working multiple jobs, maybe a single parent household. You have situations where even within their communities, there may not be an ability for the kind of informal or formal learning, again, that we got in the evenings where parents could sit down with you and help you with your math homework. And in a lot of cases, unfortunately, that's not something a parent can actually help some of these kids with. It's building the systems in total and thinking about it from a total system. It's the idea that maybe the school day could be longer because if you can keep them in and use some of the extracurricular time, it's the programs or systems like the Nova Science Center or others. Mason actually has a ton of interaction into the local communities, just being the largest, most diverse university in the Commonwealth and right here in Northern Virginia until recently, the only one. Of course, others are slowly encroaching, but in the same way that their STEM outreach has connected into communities and brought in as Mason, and I know we'll talk about that too, but part of the love of that is this access to excellence charter that they have. Uh, one third of Mason students, more or less roundabouts is Title I school or Pell Grant eligible kids. One third are first generation going college kids. So that promise of anyone who wants an education, here's a place where you can go to get it. I think, again, all of those things require money. They require scholarship dollars. They require, like in the case of the Science Center, we not only have to complete our $75 million campaign, which we're getting close, $69 million, so we're very close and getting ready to break ground next year, but also for the ongoing programming. That gets the center built. We also need to continue to raise money so that we can get kids to come through. Field trips cost money, obviously, in a post-COVID world right now that's shut down. Or building more outreach systems that we can get out to the kids. And this is all across the region and into D.C., Central Virginia. I mean, we really want to service the whole region. How do you get people excited? How do you get them to be involved? You're clearly a cheerleader for this project. So how do you rally up the interest and get people going from, oh, they say that this is a really cool idea to actually being involved and not just talking about it? I think of it as every individual conversation is an opportunity and each one has a different viewpoint. I talked to a lot of childhood friends that have done very well now because we had the opportunity. We had the parents who took the risk. We had the parents who succeeded and then helped educate us and got us into these fields. And I talked to them about the fact that this region, for many of us, I still have, and I love the fact that I have 40 and 50 year relationships of childhood friends still in the area and many who have done incredibly well. And that's the conversation is this is a chance for us to put a stamp in our region, in our backyard, for our kids, for future generations here. And so that's one thread that, frankly, whether it's the Science Center or Mason, even if they didn't go there, those are some of the biggest projects happening in the community. And so if you really want a family legacy, if you really want to, in the case of myself and our family, a significant event was dad's passing four years ago. And as his health was declining for four or five years, 
we were having these conversations that were really better understood for the first time, all the challenges he faced when he was younger in India, and then the challenge he faced ultimately to get here to the U.S., and then even the early challenges here with, frankly, the things that we've been talking about in the country now intensely for the last year and a half, systemic racism and other things that he faced as he was growing in his career. And that's not unique to him. There are a lot of people facing that. So as we get to this place in life, the charter for that community of people that when I talk to them is, this is your chance. This is your chance to give back into this region and help. So that's one thread. There is the very workforce, you brought it up earlier, the very long-term thread that we have to think about where when you think about the higher ed institutions and the the high school level on, and frankly, the community college, and then the four-year institutions, that spectrum, that's about the next five to 10 years of workforce, right? The science center starts to think about 20 and 30 years out. And we really have to, again, have that full continuum of thinking that at the most practical level with a lot of my network being other GovCon business owners and other GovCon entrepreneurs or senior executives at large firms, we're all facing this challenge. We're seeing a digital native environment. We're seeing the importance of STEM, science and technology in almost every mission that, I mean, frankly, every mission that we, we are trying to support as a nation. And our region happens to be one of the key places for that, right? I mean, it was validated by the Amazon HQ2 decision that this is a region that is one of the heartbeats of the nation when it comes to science and tech. And we are already in a shortage. We already have to have all sorts of strategies, whether it's pure breed workforce development, whether it's reskilling and upskilling opportunities, whether it's the challenge of thinking 10, 20 years out and how do we prepare that workforce. I had an interesting conversation with someone the other day related to the Science Center that some of the four, five, six-year-olds that are going to be coming through, they're actually the ones that ultimately are going to help instantiate in Mars. They're the ones that are going to be taking some of those trips when we think about it. And how do we prepare ourselves for that? So anyway, that to me is a key part of the getting people excited is that my network in particular, just naturally because of where I am in life also, is at similar stages in life. We are in that position to sit back, think about our, our impact, think about our legacies. And I see these as great places for people to put their energy. So there are clearly short-term and long-term goals or gains to be achieved if you do get involved. So specifically with the Science Center, how can people get involved if they're interested? Well, pick up the phone and call me. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> that's number one. But there's quite a few ways. As I mentioned earlier, we're at a place now, and we just recently made a major announcement where Dominion Energy was the first named sponsor of one of our five exhibit areas. That's flow. And flow is where you really think about the flow of matter, energy, and information, right? So it's not just traditional technologies, but the fact is that when we think about Northern Virginia and the flow of information and what's unique to us with the cloud and the internet and everything that we've been key to, this sort of wraps all of that up into a really cool exhibit thing. And if you go to novaci.org, you'll see some of those. But we're in the process now of trying to complete that campaign. So there are opportunities, again, from a legacy perspective to invest right now in some of the exhibit areas that still have to be named and other sub-exhibit areas and whatnot. There's also some tremendous initiatives we're supporting when it comes to internship type programs. We were part of, you know, many people in your audience are going to be aware with the Commonwealth Cyber Initiative, the CCI, mm -hmm. and what it's doing. We brought a bunch of seniors in high school through that internship program in conjunction with George Mason. And so there's volunteering opportunities. There's 
of course, helping with the fundraising and really getting the word out. And those to me are the two big ones where we're at a place now where we hope to have a groundbreaking scheduled at this point for sometime late summer, early fall of next year. And then it'll be a couple of year build process. So hopefully cross our fingers. A couple of years from now, we'll be able to cut the ribbon on that. But right now, it really is about closing out the campaign so that we can really go full-fledged ahead on the building. And there's still a ton of opportunity for people to engage that way. And then as while that's going on, coming out of COVID, we did a lot, like everybody, a pivot towards online camps and sending STEM kits in a box or science kits in a box for summer camps out. As we start to slowly come back out, there's, I think, again, opportunities there for people to volunteer or support schools kids coming through and hopefully we'll see more of that as over the next couple of months as we get past the winter and some of the variants that we're dealing with now. Is there anything else you think is important to add? No, I just leave it as I do see the Science Center as something that's a long term view of our region. It's something that when you get from the tactical and sort of the really, what can I do now? In thinking about how can you seed the growth of the future? How can you seed the workforce of the future? How can you seed environment for kids that are coming out of, again, some of the Title I areas or other parts of our region that don't have everything that many of us are blessed to now have? This is a chance to plant those seeds now and see that in your lifetime. This is something that for many of us, I mean, I expect to see not only this come out of the ground, but I expect to see a generation of kids come through here and be able to know that I can look back 20, 30 years from now and say, you know, I didn't wait till the end. I planted those seeds at a stage in life where you could actually have impact and help guide the growth of those and then see the net result of that. Well, Sami, thanks so much for chatting with me today. It's been such a pleasure. No, I appreciate it. This has been great. Thank you for helping get the word out. I love the new initiative. So I know there's a lot of us in the GovCon community that are passionate about many things. I know this isn't the end all for that. I do hope that this does generate some interest. And I, once again, would love to talk to folks about it. But thank you for the service you all are providing, too, to get these stories out.